You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Quick heads up, this episode picks up where the last one left off. It's not exactly part two, and you don't, strictly speaking, need to listen to that one. It's a date is the title to understand this. I just hope you will, because I worked hard on it. This time around, we should probably begin with a quick science lesson. So let me put on my best Jad impression, throw in some illustrative bleeps and bloops, and get on with it. If you want to know how old the Earth is, you first got to turn to the periodic table of the elements. And if you're put off by bad memories of 7th grade science classes, don't worry. We're going to keep this simple. If, on the other hand, you're attracted by fond memories of 7th grade science classes, I'm sorry. We're going to keep this simple. Like, extremely simple. The simplest info to be gleaned from the periodic table. Atomic numbers. The atomic number of an element denotes how many protons are in its nucleus, and how many protons are in its nucleus determines what an element is. That's it. If there's one proton, it's hydrogen. If there are two protons, it's helium. No matter what. Simple, right? Okay, so let's imagine an atom with six protons in its nucleus. That makes it the sixth element on the periodic table, carbon. Again, for emphasis, if it's got six protons, it's carbon, full stop. But a carbon atom also contains two other kinds of particles, electrons and neutrons. We can mostly ignore electrons for our purposes here. See, I told you, simple. Except to note that electrons are negatively charged and protons are positively charged. And as your very fond memories of the magnet unit in fourth grade remind you, like charges repel one another. This is an issue for the six protons in our carbon nucleus, because they're packed pretty tightly together, and they don't like that. Luckily, there's that third particle, the neutron. Neutrons live in the nucleus with the protons and provide a little room for the Holy Spirit between the protons, so that they don't decide to fuck off and fly away. Well, as long as there are the right amount of neutrons, at least. Which, in the case of our little carbon atom, is not a given. See, there are a whole bunch of different kinds of carbon, which vary according to how many neutrons are living in the nucleus with those six protons. We call these kinds isotopes. And carbon comes in 15 known isotopes, but don't worry, we're keeping things simple, remember? Only three of those isotopes occur naturally. The rest have to be made in particle accelerators. So, our carbon atom Should we give it a name and a little cartoon voice? How about Carby? Carby. What do you say, Carby? Carby, Carby, oxen-free. How adorable. Okay, so Carby is one of the three naturally occurring carbon isotopes, which are called carbon-12, carbon-13, and carbon-14. What those numbers indicate is pretty simple, too. They're the mass numbers, or nucleon numbers, of the isotopes. Or, even simpler, 
They're the number of subatomic particles in the atom's nucleus. We know that a carbon atom always has six protons, so carbon-12 has six protons and six neutrons. Carbon-13 has six protons and seven neutrons, and carbon-14 has six protons and eight neutrons. Most of the carbon on Earth is carbon-12, 98.93% of it. Carbon-13 fills in 1.1%, and carbon-14 is that tiny little remainder. If Carby were 12, he'd be stable. I'm thinking about investing, but I couldn't decide between a mutual or an exchange-traded fund. If Carby were 13, he'd still be stable. I should probably have just put it into my IRA. But our friend Carby is the other kind. Carbon-14. Then I saw an Elon Musk tweet, and now I'm going to be a Dogecoin millionaire. This, these references are going to age so well. Carbon-14 is unstable. That eighth neutron is not welcome in the nucleus, at least not dressed the way it is. So, it changes. It expels an electron, along with a little bit of mass, from the nucleus. We call this change radioactive decay. Yeah, Carby isn't just unstable. He's radioactive. I listen to pretty much everything Elon Musk says. He's probably the second smartest guy out there, next to Jordan Peterson. Oh God, please stay away from Carby. But after that neutron is done shooting off, it's cool to stick around the nucleus. Because it's not a neutron anymore. It's changed into a proton. That means Carby now has six neutrons and seven protons. Which means Carby isn't Carby anymore. He's... No. Uh-uh. No. No. No way. No. Nah. Not quite. Yeah, that's it. Nitro. Carby has transformed from an unstable carbon-14 atom. 5G is the real pandemic. Into a stable nitrogen-14 atom. I don't really use Twitter. Oh, that's much better. How'd I do? Was that simple enough? Carbon-14 is radioactive. It has too many neutrons, so one of those neutrons transforms into a proton, and the carbon turns to nitrogen. The critical thing is that this happens at an absolutely set rate. If you start with a hunk of 100% carbon-14, in 5,730 years, plus or minus 40, 50% of that hunk will have decayed into nitrogen. 5,730 years after that, half of the remaining carbon will have decayed, and the hunk will be just 25% carbon-14, and so on. That is to say, carbon-14 has a half-life of 5,730 years. Now here's the real kicker. Carbon-14 is formed naturally on Earth by cosmic rays, high-energy protons from the sun, hitting nitrogen in the planet's atmosphere. Small amounts of carbon-14 are forming in the sky all the time, and most of it combines with oxygen to become carbon dioxide. Plants then take in carbon dioxide during photosynthesis, which are then eaten by herbivores, which are then eaten by carnivores, and eventually every living thing has carbon dioxide in it. But the carbon dioxide made from carbon-14 has, well, you know, carbon-14 in it, which means 
Well, first off, it means it's radioactive, but don't worry about that. What's really interesting is that that means there's carbon-14 in all living things. For a while. You're probably ahead of this, but this is how radiocarbon dating works. If you discover a fossil, or a mummy, or an old piece of paper, or anything else that was at one time alive, you can analyze the proportion of carbon-14 to nitrogen-14 and determine, roughly, when that one time was. Well, provided that thing wasn't alive too long ago. That 5,730-year half-life means that eventually there's not enough carbon-14 left in a thing to accurately date it. So radiocarbon dating is only good for things that are about 50,000 years old or less. But don't worry, because there are other naturally occurring radioactive isotopes that we can use to determine the age of older things. Interested in dinosaur bones? Of course you are. They're way too old for carbon dating, but the sediment they're found in can be dated via potassium-argon dating, since potassium-40 has a half-life of 3,753,000,000 years. That's pretty old. But what if you want to get really old? Like, how old is the Earth old? For that, you'd need uranium, which decays into lead. And the process of figuring out how to accurately date the planet through that decay led one man to a startling realization that the planet was at serious risk of decay itself. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Lead Age. There's a series of happy coincidences that lead us down the terrible primrose path of this story. The first of those happy coincidences is a bit of a primrose path itself, the decay chain of uranium-238. Uranium-238 is unstable, radioactive, like carbon-14, so it decays until it becomes a stable element. But it doesn't get there directly. Instead, it passes through a long series of radioactive isotopes on its way. Uranium-238 first becomes thorium-234, which becomes protactinium, which becomes another still unstable form of uranium, which becomes another isotope of thorium, which becomes radium, which becomes radon, which becomes polonium, which becomes astatine, which becomes... You get the gist. Eventually, more than 20 steps down the line, it settles in as the stable lead-206. Each of the isotopic steps along the way has a half-life of its own, but most of them are very short. That first step down, thorium-234, decays by half in under a month. Polonium-218's half-life is just over three minutes. Astatine-218's one and a half seconds. But uranium-238 itself has an extremely long half-life, about 4.5 billion years. And that means it has incredible potential for dating extremely old things. Lots of radioactive isotopes have long half-lives, though. An isotope is only useful for dating if it occurs naturally amid things you want to date, and that is the second happy coincidence. There's uranium in a lot of rocks and minerals. And from these, we first started getting decent estimates of a ceiling for the planet's age, through Arthur Holmes, who we talked about at the end of last episode. 
Holmes was able to pin his rock samples as being somewhere between 1.6 and 3 billion years old. This was really impressive work, but it's also, you might notice, a huge range. The problem is that it's not enough to know the half-life of uranium. You also have to know how much or how little lead might have been in the sample to begin with, or might have come about through other means. And that is how we get to the next happy coincidence, the most striking of them all, zircons. Zircons are crystalline minerals, gemstones. Big jewelry-sized chunks of zircon are pretty hard to find these days, but tiny little specks of zircon are present throughout a lot of rocks, including some very, very old ones. That's part one of this greatest happy coincidence. The second part is, as you might anticipate, that zircons contain very trace amounts of uranium in their crystal structures. But the third part of the happy coincidence is the most remarkable. When zircon crystals are forming, they push out all lead. So, we know that zircons start out with a tiny bit of uranium and absolutely no lead. And they're formed along with some of the oldest rocks on the planet. It's almost too perfect, but perfect isn't the same thing as easy. That's the groundwork, finally laid out. Now we can get to the human part of this story, and there are a lot of humans in this story, including you and me. But the first one I have to introduce you to is Claire Cameron Patterson. Claire Cameron Patterson was born and raised in the small town of Mitchellville, right smack in the middle of Iowa. He was interested in chemistry from childhood and studied it both for his undergrad at Grinnell and then his master's at the University of Iowa. It was 1944 when he completed that degree, and he figured that as soon as he was done, he should go into the military. But one of his professors suggested a different route. He told Patterson that if he really wanted to make a difference in the war, he should go to the University of Chicago and help build the atomic bomb. So he and Lori, his wife and fellow chemist, packed up and joined the Manhattan Project. At U of C, Claire worked under Mark A. Fred at the Metallurgical Laboratory, doing spectroscopy on, what else, uranium, to help determine that decay chain we just described. From there, the Pattersons moved to Oak Ridge, where they helped process uranium for the bomb. Then, after the bomb was dropped, and most everybody, aside from Oppenheimer, got to stew in their complicated feelings about having helped create the most terrible weapon in the history of the world, which was between 1.6 and 3 billion years, remember, Patterson returned to the University of Chicago, where he started working on his PhD, and where he started working on a better date for the Earth. It's time to short-circuit this part of the story, which is a shame, because the work Patterson did for dating is damn impressive. He eventually was able to measure the lead and uranium content of fragments of the Canyon Diablo meteorite in Meteor Crater, Arizona. This wasn't just impressive science, but meticulous physical labor. Samples had to be crushed, their dust separated by magnets, and then Claire had to find the tiny zircon crystals, most far smaller than a piece of pencil lead through a microscope, and pick up each individual one with a teensy set of tweezers but the actual important parts of these eensy little zircon crystals were just the lead and uranium, which are barely present at all. And all that before getting into the problem he faced, which is the real reason we're talking about this at all. Contamination. In the end, Claire Cameron Patterson was able to establish the beginning of the Earth to 4.55 billion years ago, 
a figure that has more or less stood the test of time since he published it in 1956. But since Patterson had begun working on the dating project in 1948, he and his partner George Tilton had consistently faced a confusing problem. When they would date a zircon, it was Tilton's job to figure out the proportion of uranium while Patterson worked out the lead. Tilton's figures were clean enough. When they thought they knew the approximate age of the zircon, the uranium levels tended to match it. But the lead levels, Patterson found, were much too high. There was extra lead getting into their samples, into their instruments, into their lab, and they couldn't work out why or how to keep it out. In 1953, Patterson left Chicago following his mentor and fellow Manhattan Project scientist Harrison Brown to Caltech. There, Patterson completed his work on the Diablo Canyon sample and successfully dated the planet, but only after he developed one of the world's first clean rooms to clear his lab of the lead contaminants that had plagued his research in Chicago. He still didn't know where it came from, but at least now he knew how to avoid it. In addition to these pretty astonishing achievements, Patterson's research had also led him to another. The work he'd done on the meteorites had supplied him with a way to study the tiny zircon flecks in all kinds of common rock and mineral samples, even in seawater. And that meant he now had a way to track the amounts of lead in the environment at almost any time in history. And that is how we get, finally, to the meat of this story. What Patterson soon realized was why he'd had so much trouble with lead contamination back in Chicago. There was a lot more lead in the environment than there had ever been before. Like, at least 80 times as much. Most startling were the seawater samples. In 1963, he published a report along with Mitsunobu Tatsumoto showing that the amount of lead in the waters on the ocean's surface were between 3 and 10 times as high as those in deep water. Lead is famously heavy, of course, so one would expect it to sink and for the level of lead to get higher as the depth increased. Instead, Patterson and Tatsumoto were seeing the opposite. That could only mean one thing. The flow of lead into the surface was new, and it was ongoing. In 1956, Claire Cameron Patterson had published one of the most vital facts possible about the planet, its age. Now, in 1965, he was ready to publish a fact even more important. That planet, and every living thing on it, was being poisoned. When he was 18, Philometer Uajiti's uncle died. Bad news for young Phil. Not so much because he loved his uncle, maybe he did, I don't know, but because his uncle was Attalus II Philadelphus, king of Pergamon. His death meant that Phil ascended to become King Attalus III. Okay, maybe it doesn't sound like such bad news to you, but to Phil, it was terrible. He didn't want to be king. He didn't like being king. What he wanted to do was garden, which was bad news for his friends. He spent most of his time tending, digging, planting, and sowing various herbs. He'd mix them into aromatic cooking oils. Then he would send them to his friends as gifts. Okay, maybe that doesn't sound like such bad news to you. But it sure was for those who received his presents, 
because King Attalus III mixed various poisons in with his herbs and made his friends the subject of sadistic experiments, wherein he tried to determine whether the herbs might be antidotes to the poison. When he died without heir in 133 BC, he left all of his kingdom to Rome, saying that they just would have taken it anyway. To honor King Attalus III, Nicander of Colophon wrote two poems for him. About what else? Poison. The first, and longer of the two, is entitled Theriaca, and it deals with venomous animals, which include Scorpio, who killed Orion the Hunter, dragons, though whether Nicander is referring to literal dragons or not is ambiguous, and Amphisbena, a snake with heads on both ends. Nicander's second poem is Alexipharmica, which deals mostly with ingested poisons, plants, some animals, and minerals, including the oldest existent reference to lead poisoning. In the second place, consider the hateful brew compounded with gleaming deadly white lead, whose fresh color is like milk which foams all over when you milk it, rich in the springtime into deep pails. Over the victim's jaws and in the grooves of the gums is plastered an astringent froth, and the furrow of the tongue turns rough on either side, and in the depth of the throat grows somewhat dry, and from the pernicious venom follows a dry retching and hawking, for this is severe. Meanwhile, his spirit sickens, and he is worn out with mortal suffering. His body, too, grows chill, while sometimes his eyes behold strange illusions, or else he drowses. Nor can he bestir his limbs as heretofore, and he succumbs to the overmastering fatigue. Worry not, though, because Nicander has a cure for you, which includes this opaquely vivid passage. Moreover, if you rub down the hard stones of the Persea in gleaming olive oil, they will ward off injury. The Persia, which once on a time Perseus, when his feet bore him from the land of Cepheus, and he had cut off the teeming head of Medusa with his falchion, readily made to grow in the fields of Mycenae, it was a recent gift of Cepheus, on the spot where the scabbard shape of his falchion fell, beneath the topmost summit of Melanthus, where a nymph revealed to the son of Zeus the famed spring of Langea. Which is all to say, cover a plum stone in olive oil and swallow it to induce vomiting. Now that, that is how you write some poison poetry. Nicander may present the oldest recorded knowledge of lead poisoning, but there's little doubt that people knew about the problem long before him. Dr. Herbert Needleman, a name you should catalog for later, suggests that ancient civilizations recognized the potential dangers of lead as far back as 2000 BC. Back then, people had already been working with lead for at least 4,000 years. The oldest known lead mine is located in modern-day Turkey and was extracting the metal by 6500 BC. That makes lead working older than bronze, older than iron, at least as old as tin, and possibly contemporaneous with copper. It could be that lead making represents the true birth of metallurgy. Lead was used for jewelry, for tools, for makeup, for medicine, for cooking. One could reasonably argue that the early phase of human civilization should be appropriately called the Lead Age, except that there are more fitting times for that appellation. In 202 BC, Roman general Scipio Africanus succeeded in luring Hannibal Barca back to Carthage, where he defeated him at the Battle of Zama. Carthage sued for peace, and Rome came away with most of its foreign territories, including the bulk of the Iberian Peninsula, 
which was full of minerals ripe for the mining. Great Britain offered still more. And around this same time, Rome was developing a new way of separating silver from lead deposits, which not only made them stinking rich, but also meant they had a lot of lead. At the height of the empire, Rome was extracting 200 tons of silver per year, 9 tons of gold, and 15,000 tons of copper. But in the process, they were also pulling out 80,000 tons of lead, making lead about as prevalent as iron. Left to its own devices, lead is largely immobile. It doesn't travel, it doesn't accumulate. Only human activity brings it out of trace concentrations. And the human activity of the Romans was so concentrated that Claire Cameron Patterson could chart the rise and fall of the empire just by looking at the lead levels in their sediment. This might be even less coincidental than it at first seems. Since the time Patterson charted historical lead levels and discovered the major uptick the Romans contributed, it's been hypothesized that the Roman Empire collapsed, in whole or in part, because of lead poisoning. And I'm about to tell you some juicy stories that will probably further this belief. So I'm going to state flatly, right here, that most scholars think this theory is extremely unlikely. Rome fell for a plethora of reasons, and it's really not necessary to bring heavy metal poisoning into the equation. That said, every time a piece of evidence is found, which seems to bury the lead poisoning hypothesis, another piece of evidence soon follows to restart its heart and keep it just barely beating. It's not terribly likely, but it cannot be ruled out either. The first draft of the lead-killed-Rome theory focused on the most obvious thing, plumbing. The Romans used lead pipes to deliver most of their water, and the aqueducts were lined with lead too. In fact, the very word plumbing comes from the Latin plumum, meaning lead. So the thinking goes, or went, the Romans poisoned themselves with their own infrastructure. Makes sense, but no. It turns out that Rome had a different plumbing problem, which probably protected them from peril. How you doing, microphone? You okay with all those plosives? Rome had lead pipes, yes, but they also had extremely hard water. Remember earlier on when we said that radioactive carbon-14 forms in the atmosphere where it bonds with oxygen to become carbon dioxide? Well, when raindrops fall, they dissolve a tiny bit of that carbon dioxide. An even tinier bit of the carbon dioxide in those droplets becomes carbonic acid, which is present in extremely trace amounts in the rainwater. And when that tiny bit of carbonic acid makes contact with calcium hydroxide, it forms calcium carbonate, lime scale, that chalky stuff that builds up in, well, pipes. As it happens, calcium hydroxide was one of the main components of Roman concrete, which they used to build the non-leaden majority of the aqueducts. Romans complained loudly about the lime scale in their water, the taste, the hassle, the buildup that slowed their pipes. They probably had no idea that that lime scale coating inside their pipes was protecting them from lead poisoning. Archaeological surveys have concluded that Roman drinking water had a hundred times as much lead as surrounding springs, an unnerving amount, but not enough to destroy the empire. That's not the end of the story, though. There's still a whole lot of lead left to account for. Rome used it in weapons, in jewelry, in cups and bowls and spoons. Most critically, and unfortunately, they used it in wine. 
Throughout the vast reach of the empire, Roman wine was beloved. But that vastness was a problem, since the wine tended to be sour by the time it reached its destination. To combat this, they adulterated the wine with sapa, grape juice that was boiled down to an extremely sweet concentrate. There is some good reason to believe that sapa was preferentially cooked in lead pots. Our old pal Pliny says as much, and also notes that some people who drank lots of sapa had health problems that sound a good bit like lead poisoning, although he himself didn't make the connection. While there are a few written hints besides Pliny that suggest at least some Romans thought sapa was better if cooked in lead, just what portion was made this way is still hotly debated. The reason for this preference, though, is no mystery. Lead acetate is the first known artificial sweetener, and was probably used one way or the other to keep wine sweet. So yeah, the Romans used a lot of lead in a lot of ways which they, like, probably shouldn't have. And some of the problems that plagued the empire do resemble lead poisoning, like low birth rates, high rates of colitis, and a suspicious rate of madness among Roman emperors. The counter-argument, which I have to reiterate is accepted by the vast majority of historians because I can tell you right now that I am personally not going to be able to make it sound convincing, is that this is all unnecessary conjecture. Rome fell for a lot of reasons, most of which aren't at all attributable to lead. Skeptics also rightly note that the madness of most of those mad emperors is very much in question. Caligula, Nero, Domitian, they were sadists. Paranoid, self-obsessed, and cruel, sure, but many of the accounts of their most eccentric behaviors, like the time Caligula supposedly declared war against Neptune and demanded his army charge into the sea and take seashells as plunder, come from sources that lived much later than their subjects, and usually they had an axe to grind. The biggest problem for those who credit lead with the end of Rome is that nothing obvious changed about Roman behavior in the run-up to the end. If they were all suffering from lead poisoning in the 6th century, there's no reason why they shouldn't have also been suffering from it in the 1st century. So why would it have suddenly become a society-ending problem? The least convincing argument of those who deny lead as being a contributing factor, however, is one of the most commonly made, that at least a good portion of well-educated Romans understood lead was poisonous and did their level best to inform everyone else of the problem. It beggars belief, they say, to think that a society could have fallen prey to rampant lead poisoning even while there were experts around to warn people of the problem. The ironic thing about these incredulous historians is that most all of them lived through that very scenario. And the expert trying to warn us was none other than Claire Cameron Patterson. The smack hit Claire Patterson's face in 1965. In his quest to discover environmental lead levels, he'd taken ice cores from Greenland and Antarctica. These long cylinders of ice stretched back through time, all the way to around 2000 BC. And from them, Patterson could pick out any moment in time between then and when the ice was removed and say, after some hard work, how much lead people were at that time putting out into the world. He could watch the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. He could see lead mining climb as Europe passed out of medieval times and into early industry. He could see them dip again as the Black Death killed off a third of the continent. He could put his finger on the age of discovery, the age of enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, 
Each one was accompanied by a marked uptick in lead, as new mines were founded and new purposes invented. And then, all of the sudden, there was a spike. In just 20 or so years, roughly between 1930 and 1950, the already historically high rates of new lead being put out into the atmosphere had skyrocketed. Other metrics showed the same thing. Like ice cores, lichens are great indicators of environmental lead levels, and scientists had been collecting samples of lichens on Plumbers Island, Maryland, since about 1907. At that time, spectroscopic analysis showed the lichens contained about 100 parts of lead per million. In 1940, that number was around 175. By 1960, it had jumped 200 points to 375. And just five years later, in 1965, the lichens on Plumbers Island contained lead at a rate of more than 1,100 parts per million. Back in Chicago and at Caltech, Patterson had contended with a flabbergasting amount of contamination. While trying to get proper lead levels from the meteorite samples, he found confounding levels everywhere he went. There was lead in the water, in the paint on the walls, on his beakers and test tubes, on the lab coats, even in his hair. To find the Earth's age, he'd had to install extra air filters, wear plastic gowns and masks. He'd bought all new glassware, rubbed every inch of it down with scouring pads, dumped it in acid, and then rinsed it with water he twice distilled. He'd scrubbed and mopped and vacuumed and buffed. Everything was covered in sterile plastic. He went into the walls, removed the plumbing, lead pipes, and the wiring, lead solder. Looking back on this time for an oral history project in 1995, he told the interviewer, you know Pigpen in Charlie Brown's comic, where stuff is coming out all over the place? That's what people look like with respect to lead. Everyone. The lead from your hair, when you walk into a super clean laboratory like mine, will contaminate the whole damn lab. Just from your hair. When he started developing his clean room, Patterson knew something was wrong. There was too much lead around. What was strange was that nobody else seemed to notice it. There were people out there studying lead in rocks, lead in lichens, lead in ice cores, even lead in human beings. And none of them seemed to see what he did. After publishing The Age of the Earth, Patterson had got funding from the petroleum industry to look at lead in seawater and then ice cores. His mentor and boss, Harrison Brown, told the American Petroleum Institute that Patterson's lead research could help find new ways to excavate fossil fuels. Instead, they showed something was wrong. The seawater showed that huge quantities of lead were entering the oceans recently and continuously. The ice cores showed that atmospheric lead levels were climbing at a rate entirely unrivaled in all of human history. Together, the data showed that Patterson's suspicions were right. For some reason, millions of tons of lead were being released into the environment. And for some reason, he was the only one who knew it. Soon enough, Claire Cameron Patterson determined why. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. 
We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, books. The smell, the mood, the vibe. When's the last time you finished one? If it's been a minute, you're not alone. Start a better reading habit with Literati, a book subscription service that gives you access to exclusive book clubs led by the world's most inspiring people. Whether you're enjoying beach reads with Ellen Hildebrand or exploring mythic realms with Joseph Campbell scholars, you'll find their brilliant insights on the Literati app. Authors, leaders, and activists spark lively conversations in 12 unique book clubs, engaging a diverse community of readers from all around the world. That means you can talk about Stephen Curry's favorite books with Stephen Curry, for real. They also host exclusive interviews with the authors themselves, where you can ask your biggest questions and get the insider answers you won't find in any other book club. Move freely between clubs, or use the standard membership to access everything and choose the books you want delivered. And when you subscribe to a Literati book club, you help support children's literacy efforts. Since 2019, Literati has donated over 250,000 books to underfunded schools, women and children's care centers, and nonprofits. Reimagine what a book club can be. Redeem your free trial at literati.com slash the constant. Head to literati.com slash the constant to learn more and read more with Literati. That's literati.com slash the constant. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash the constant. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Brian J. Carter, 
was born in Jackson County, Michigan, on August 17, 1863. He was industrious from the get-go. When he was 23, he opened a printing and stamp company in Jackson. Nine years later, in 1894, he and his father went into business together, opening a combination bicycle shop and sundry store. Two years later, they opened United States Tag Co., another printing business. All this work in steam printing and bicycles coincidentally gave B.J. Carter a line into the future. He understood engines, he understood gears, he understood wheels, and he lived in Michigan at the turn of the century. Altogether, it was the perfect recipe for Carter to make a fortune in the budding new automobile industry. In 1902, he founded the Jackson Automobile Company, along with a couple of associates. On his own, he was developing a friction drive engine, which used spinning wheels to drive power instead of chains and sprockets. In 1905, he left Jackson Automobile and formed Motor Car Co. Motor Car Co. was a bit of a hit. Carter moved the headquarters to the Motor City, Detroit, where he both competed with and befriended the other early auto magnates of the era, particularly Henry M. Leland, founder of Cadillac, and Billy Durant, co-founder of General Motors, and Leland's boss. What set BJ's eponymous Carter car apart from the rest was the friction drive engine, which allowed for better control of speed and better stopping than fixed-gear cars of the time. By early 1908, Durant was talking about GM buying the Carter car, and B.J. Carter was set to go from successful independent upstart to multi-millionaire auto exec. In early spring of that year, B.J. was happily driving his Carter car through Detroit when he came upon a woman stranded on the Belle Isle Bridge. Her car had stalled, and she couldn't get it started again. It was her lucky day. An honest-to-God owner of a car company was there to get her moving again. Like you had to do in those days, BJ grabbed a handle, approached the engine, stuck it in, and started turning. He cranked and cranked and cranked, round and round, until, sputter, 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 the engine came to life. Then, it kicked. The crank handle came swinging around, cracking BJ in the face, and knocking him to the ground. He was taken to a hospital, where doctors determined his jaw was shattered. The wound became infected, which led to pneumonia. He died on April 6, 1908. To honor him, his pals, Henry and Billy, each came up with a tribute. Billy Durant was to buy up Motor Car Co., make it a division of GM, and then kill it off unceremoniously seven years later. Not the best memorial imaginable. How about you, Henry? Well, said Henry Leland, what if we develop a self-starting car so that nobody ever dies by a crankshaft hitting them in the head again? A much better legacy to leave behind for a fallen friend. Except that Cadillac's self-starting car would become responsible for the hundreds of millions of tons of lead pumped into the atmosphere, which Claire Patterson discovered in 1965. So, actually, kind of the worst legacy anyone has ever left in the 4.5 billion year history of the world. Hyperbole? No, not really. Of all the mistakes and bad ideas we've ever covered in this show, or will ever cover in this show, this one is probably the biggest. And I'm only putting that probably qualifier in there out of force of habit. The consequences of developing that simple thing, a car engine that didn't need to be crank-started, are so unthinkably vast, so imponderably awful, that researchers in a host of disciplines are still trying to wrap their minds around them today. Let's follow the chain of events. In 1908, B.J. Carter was struck in the head and killed by a crankshaft, leading Henry Leland to call for a self-starting engine at his company, Cadillac. 
To make it work, Leland brought in Charles Kettering, an engineer at Delco. Kettering completed the first working starter in 1911, and it was incorporated into the 1912 model of Cadillac's Model 30. It was competing against Henry Ford's Model T, the revolutionary car that brought driving to the masses. But the Model 30 had a higher top speed, luxurious interiors, a sleek design, and, of course, Charles Kettering's electric starter. Unfortunately, it was also loud as hell. The engine of the Model 30 chugged and popped and pinged, and people blamed the electric starter. The issue that was really responsible for the death of B.J. Carter wasn't the crankshaft, but the engine and the fuel, which caused the engine to kick, which spun the handle right into his head in the first place. In order to wring the extra performance out of the Model 30, it had a high-compression engine. The pistons forced the fuel very tightly into the cylinders, so that it ignited with much greater force. But it also had a tendency to ignite prematurely, which wasted energy, created those pings and kicks, and eventually damaged the engine. This is called engine knock, and it was such an issue that it single-handedly kept Cadillac behind Ford. Back at Delco, Charles Kettering began working on solving the knock problem. He knew it didn't have to do with his starter. He enlisted a young mechanical engineer named Thomas Midgley Jr. to get to the bottom of it. It took five years, but on December 9th, 1921, Midgley told Kettering he'd found the solution, a chemical compound that, when added to gasoline, prevented knock and allowed for higher octane fuel and higher compression engines. The compound was called tetraethyl lead. Okay, let's stop here for a minute, since whatever small amount of suspense that might have previously existed in this story is now fully gone. Ethyl gasoline, or leaded gasoline, became the go-to engine fuel for the next half century. And just precisely how that came to be the case is a very sticky thing to work out. Let's start with one simple fact. That leaded gasoline was really impressive. On Memorial Day, just months after Midgley showed off his results, GM supplied three drivers at the Indy 500 with leaded gas. They took gold, silver, and bronze, with the rest of the competition lagging far behind. It was an auspicious entrance for an odious entry. But leaded gasoline didn't rise to universal prominence based just on its merits. Far from it. Maybe the best way to frame this next section is with the obvious question. How did Charles Kettering Thomas Midgley Jr., and the host of other players in this tragedy not realize what they were doing? Or, maybe more to the point, did they realize what they were doing? The simple answer to that is yes. That's it. The simple answer is yes. And plenty of people who have studied or written about tetraethyl-leaded gasoline have come conclusively down on that simple answer. But we, we are not here for the simple answer. We're here for the complicated one. What I mean is that there are many times in looking at the history of human decisions and policy where the truth seems obvious. Lead is a known poison, so you shouldn't send huge quantities of it into the air. And the answer for why the obvious truth was ignored seems equally obvious. There was money to be made. There was money to be made. So a conspiracy unfurled to bury the obvious truth. Damn the consequences. This story looks more like that than most. And if you come at it expecting that shape, you will find it drawn with thick, sharpie lines. 
But my experience and my suspicion is that most things are not done out of conscious villainy. Instead, I believe that villainy is usually born from two parents, ambiguity and incentive. When there is disclarity and ignorance, it's easy enough to keep an open mind, to say, I'm not sure, and to proceed accordingly. But when there are two possibilities and one of them profits you, then that ambiguity seems to melt away. The larger the incentive, the more powerful the contrary hypothesis it can stifle. In the case of leaded gasoline, the danger seems quite apparent, but it was not absolutely apparent. There was some amount of ambiguity and a whole lot of incentive. So, let's start with the obvious. When Thomas Midgley Jr. reported his discovery to Charles Kettering on December 9, 1921, everyone already knew about the dangers of lead poisoning, including, most certainly, Thomas Midgley Jr. and Charles Kettering. There you go. Open and shut case, right? Not quite. Because to be more specific, everyone already knew about the dangers of acute lead poisoning. That is, they knew that if a person took in a bunch of lead in a short amount of time, well, you, you shouldn't do that. That's bad. What they didn't know, or can reasonably claim to have not known, is that low doses of lead delivered over a longer period of time are also bad. And you might scoff, come on, and I hear where you're coming from, but this goes back to the most basic observation in the history of toxicology, noted by Paracelsus. The dose makes the poison. Almost anything is poisonous in sufficient concentrations, but most poisons are harmless below a certain threshold. Like the old saying goes, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, 200 apples a day brings arsenic poisoning your way. This is our first point of ambiguity, and we need to underline it really hard. Nobody knew how much lead was safe. There was acute lead poisoning, which was pretty friggin' conspicuous, but below that? Who knows? Very few people suggested that lead could be harmful in lesser quantities and more subtle ways. Fewer people still made guesses at what those subtle ways could be, and nobody whatsoever had produced proof. On the subject of acute lead poisoning, however, there was plenty of reason for Midgley, Kettering, et al. to be cautious, because the particular lead compound they were working with, tetraethyl lead, was especially dangerous. It takes as little as 6 milliliters of tetraethyl lead to induce severe and acute lead poisoning, and it can be absorbed directly through the skin or inhaled by its fumes. Symptoms begin soon after exposure and escalate quickly, from skin irritation to fever, to nightmares, to hallucinations, to edema, to coma, to kidney and heart failure, to death. If, somehow, Midgley didn't know about this when he started working with tetraethyl lead, he certainly learned soon enough. Tetraethyl was at home in the laboratory where Midgley had experimented with it. It had been discovered without fanfare by German chemist Carl Jacob Loewig in 1853, but it had no obvious uses. Beyond the occasional science experiment, tetraethyl lead was mostly ignored. You could have called it forgotten, but then it would have had to have been known in the first place. Then, quite suddenly, it had the potential to be one of the most important and profitable chemicals in the world. There had been other potential anti-knock agents, which we'll come back to towards the end, but each of them had their problems. The problem with tetraethyl was simple. There wasn't much of it. To make it an additive to gasoline would require manufacturing it at scale, something that nobody had ever even considered doing before. In April of 1923, GM founded the General Motors Chemical Company, 
with Kettering as its president and Midgley as VP. They opened the first tetraethyl manufacturing plant in Dayton, Ohio, in September. It was a disaster. The reactor vessels were kept right there in the middle of the plant and had to be opened several times over the process. Each time, they let off lead into the air. Workers had the job of recovering the chemical catalysts from the process by physically squeezing semi-molten lead like a sponge with their shovels and boots. By the end of the year, two men were dead and some unrecorded number, at least 50, were suffering from acute lead poisoning, including Thomas Midgley Jr. himself. At the same time, DuPont, a part owner of GM, built a second, larger tetraethyl manufacturing plant in Deepwater, New Jersey. Within a year of opening, eight workers were dead. The manufacturing process DuPont and GM were using wasn't just dangerous, it was also expensive. They teamed up with a third player, Standard Oil, and together the three mega companies formed the Ethyl Corporation. They opened a new manufacturing facility in Standard's Bayway Refinery in Elizabeth, New Jersey, using a new, cheaper process for making tetraethyl lead. New and cheaper, but not safer. Within two months of ribbon cutting, the plant was making disturbing headlines. A plant worker named Walter Dymock got out of bed one night, opened his window, and walked out of it. According to the New York Times, a chemical had made him suddenly go insane. Same went for William McSweeney, who came home from work early that same week feeling ill. The next morning, his sister-in-law called the police to say he was acting irrationally. It took four men and a straitjacket to subdue him. William Cressage was finally brought to an asylum when his behavior became too erratic to ignore. He'd lost 22 pounds in a month. Co-workers noticed that Ernest Oldbert was hallucinating on Thursday morning, October 23rd. By the end of the day, he was paranoid and complained of persecution. On Friday, he began suddenly thrashing and dodging invisible pursuers on the factory floor, screaming that there were, quote, three coming at me at once. By October 27, 1924, four workers at Bayway had gone mad, and Olgert was dead. The doctors believed the cause to be ethylene, which was then in use as an anesthetic. How and why they mistook tetraethyl is not known. When asked for comment, a representative for Standard Oil said, these men probably went insane because they worked too hard. Three days later, the four other men were dead too. Thomas Midgley Jr. was sent out before a group of reporters to quell a growing public relations crisis. The press conference is, in hindsight, a real head-scratcher. Midgley insisted that tetraethyl was safe and that the deaths, now at least 15 of them, between Dayton, Deepwater, and Bayway, were caused by the heedlessness of workers in failing to follow instructions. To prove his point, he pointed to the public record. This ethyl gasoline had been in use for over a year at more than 10,000 gas stations without a single report of sickness or injury. And then he did something incredible. He pulled out a bottle of clear liquid and poured a large volume of it out directly onto his bare hand. Then he held the rest of the bottle under his nose and breathed from it for a full minute. What was in this bottle? The implication is that it was tetraethyl lead, but if that were the case, Midgley should have gotten very sick and probably died. At the very least, he should have been afraid of dying enough to not pull this stunt. My best guess is that it wasn't pure tetraethyl lead, but a simulation of the concentration found in the leaded gasoline. I doubt he used gasoline itself because that wouldn't be great to breathe and pour on your skin either. 
So maybe it was a drop or two of tetraethyl diluted in water to show that the amount found in their product was safe? Or maybe it was a plain old lie. The day after Midgley sniffed the stuff he sniffed, a report dropped. The U.S. Bureau of Mines had conducted an experiment where they exposed test animals to extensive ethyl gasoline fumes and found no harmful effects. You might find the timing of the release suspicious, but there's a simple enough explanation. BOM had performed the study in concert with General Motors, who had final say on when, or if, it would be dropped to the public. Despite these efforts, New Jersey ordered the Bayway plant closed and banned the sale of leaded gasoline, along with New York and Philadelphia. For the next few years, scientists attacked each other in the press, some claiming tetraethyl lead was too dangerous, others that it was perfectly safe. Most of those in the latter camp worked for industry, which again seems to support our simple answer. But it's important to pay attention to the fine details of the debate. Again, a lot of writing about the beginning of the leaded gas disaster focuses on the many experts who argued from the earliest days that it was unsafe. This is made out as evidence that the gas and auto industries should have known or did know what they were doing. But the people ringing alarm bells in 1924 and 1925 were almost all, to a man, saying that tetraethyl lead was too dangerous to manufacture, not to burn. It was a threat to workers not civilians. And soon enough, the threat seemed to be put down. In 1924, Charles Kettering hired an assistant professor of physiology at the University of Cincinnati to look into the conditions and safety at the manufacturing plants. His name was Robert Kehoe. In The Simple Telling, this story has three main villains, Kettering, Midgley, and perhaps especially Robert Kehoe. And I can tell you now that when all this is done, you are not going to like Dr. Kehoe one flat bit. So I think it's my duty to first show you him in the best available light, which conveniently shines right where he enters the stage. Kehoe's first job was to examine the Dayton plant and figure out how to prevent more workers from getting sick or dying there. He did a good job of it. He had safety measures installed, hazardous materials training undertaken by all necessary employees, and air filtration systems, which seemed to remove enough of the vaporous lead from the factory air so that people were no longer flailing around on the floor or walking out windows at home. But Kehoe wanted to be sure things were all right. So he took blood lead levels of employees working with tetraethyl lead. The next step here is very important, absolutely positively critical because after his work at Dayton, Kehoe was brought on full-time as chief medical advisor to the Ethel Corporation. And for the rest of his career, he would staunchly, blindly, and some would argue, dishonestly defend the safety of their chief product. He'd bring in about a million dollars a year in today's dollars to do it, and if that isn't an incentive, I don't know what is. But villainy has two parents, and we can see the other, ambiguity in what Kehoe did with the blood lead levels he collected. He compared them to a control group made up of other employees at the Dayton facility who weren't working with tetraethyl lead. The next year, the Surgeon General would consider a full nationwide ban on leaded gasoline and would be talked out of it mainly by Dr. Robert Kehoe. Instead, the Surgeon General decided that leaded gas appeared safe, but that it required further testing and analysis. And who should bear the cost of that testing and analysis? The University of Cincinnati opened a new medical testing facility, 
with money from the Ethel Corporation and DuPont to study lead. Dr. Kehoe, who was by then medical advisor to Ethel Corp, was named the new lab's director. To really nail the point home, it was named the Kettering Laboratory. Still is, actually. And if you want to feel really frustrated, you can Google the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine's Kettering Laboratory and read a very, let's call it generous, version of the center's history. From 1930 until 1965, Robert Kehoe had a virtual monopoly on studies of environmental lead. Those studies were bought and paid for by General Motors, Standard Oil, DuPont, and their hideous love child, the Ethel Corporation. They had final say on whether research got published, how it got published, and how it was worded. All as mandated by the federal government of the United States, who took that research as gospel, not just allowing leaded gasoline to prosper without any kind of meaningful regulation, but putting the imprimatur of the U.S. on efforts to sell leaded gas around the world. All of which very much dumps into our simple answer bucket, no? But let's go back to that fatal mistake Kehoe made in measuring lead levels of the employees in Dayton. He cross-checked the employees working with tetraethyl lead against those who weren't, and found that, while slightly elevated, the blood lead levels in those working in the plant were conspicuously higher than those without. He called this the normal lead level. Wherever he and his Kettering laboratory looked, they saw similar patterns. He wrote, During the entire history of man on this earth, he has had lead in his body. He has had lead in his food. He has had lead in his drinking water. The question is not whether lead per se is dangerous, but whether a certain concentration of lead in his body is dangerous. He determined that threshold number to be 80 parts per million. Anything below that was fine, harmless, normal. I said that Kehoe had a virtual monopoly on studies of environmental lead, but virtual isn't complete. Where others studied lead, in plants, in animals, in humans, even in Plumber's Island lichens, they too found a baseline level present, which they also generally described as normal. There was lead everywhere, in everything and everyone. The logical assumption, then, was that this was normal. What would be the alternative? That everything in the whole world, every person on the planet, was being poisoned? To which Claire Patterson answered simply, yes. Claire Patterson had first run up against lead contamination at U of C, and again at Caltech. He'd developed one of the first clean rooms, dated the earth, measured seawater columns, gone to Greenland, and what he'd learned was that what Kehoe's research described wasn't normal at all. But it was typical. In the last 40 years, hundreds of thousands of tons of lead had entered the environment, entered the oceans, entered the ice, entered our bloodstreams. And by 1965, he knew why. Tetraethyl leaded gasoline. He wrote an article for the Archives of Environmental Health, in which he asserted that the contemporary typical level of lead in the atmosphere was 1,000 times the historical normal or natural quantity. The people of the world were being exposed to, quote, severe chronic lead insult. And he looked at Kehoe's 80 parts per million threshold and concluded it was, quote, unsupported by any evidence. There was a problem, though, and it's one that goes against our simple answer. 
Since Kehoe was the foremost and practically the only researcher on environmental lead poisoning, he was on the peer review panel for Patterson's article, which he called woefully ignorant. He could have spiked the paper. And if he were a villain of melodrama, acting on willful avarice, he would have. But he was a villain of ambiguity and incentive. And although he criticized the paper substantially in his review, he also enthusiastically welcomed its publication because he believed it was so ridiculously fallacious that it was best to expose it for the foolishness it was. Not everyone was so open. Soon after publication, the petroleum industry cut off funding for Patterson's work. They pressured Caltech to fire him. They came by his house, offering bribes. And they did whatever they could to paint Claire Patterson as a nut job. The simple telling of this story makes Kehoe the villain and Patterson the hero. But we're not here for the simple telling. Claire Patterson was an amazing scientist. He worked vociferously and meticulously for the next several decades on the lead problem. He hiked to the Arctic to get ice cores. He hiked to the tops of mountains. He trekked through thick, isolated jungle. He built even more rigorous anti-contamination measures. He secured bone samples from ancient mummies in order to prove, once and for all, that Kehoe's normal numbers were anything but. Yet, his part in finally getting tetraethyl lead from gasoline was, ultimately, a small one. While the data he produced was the best data available and his conclusions were basically unassailable, it would take two other factors to put an end to the menace. The first was the Clean Air Act of 1970, which set emission standards for new cars. Incredibly, those emission standards said nothing about lead, but they did set pretty tough limits on carbon monoxide smog. To meet the new law, almost all American cars from 1975 and onward were built with catalytic converters, which combine oxygen, carbon monoxide exhaust, and unburned hydrocarbon into carbon dioxide and water. But if you ran leaded gasoline fumes through a catalytic converter, the lead gunked it up and ruined it. So, along with the adoption of catalytic converters, necessarily came the introduction of unleaded gasoline. Mapping the data shows a correlation so precise that all ambiguity began to fall away. Atmospheric lead levels fell directly and in precise proportion along with leaded gasoline. The relationship was practically one-to-one. The auto and oil industries, along with the ethyl corporation, could no longer deny that tetraethyl lead was the direct, proximate cause of the preponderance of lead in the atmosphere. And that meant that they were the direct, proximate cause of the preponderance of lead in humans, too, which also mapped on top of the fall in leaded gasoline consumption. At the same time, the first solid research was being done on the effects of lead levels well below Kehoe's 80 parts per million threshold. In 1974, Dr. Herbert Needleman, remember, asked schools to collect the baby teeth of primary school children, which he then tested for lead. Then, he graphed the performance of children with high levels of lead in their teeth against those with low levels. The results were horrifying. Hold on a quick second here, because I've got to put this, unfortunately, in terms of IQ. And I really don't like IQ. IQ is, in many ways, bullshit. And I've had my sights on doing an episode about IQ for a good long while. But while we should be very wary of equating IQ with intelligence and very cautious about considering IQ in most settings, IQ is still useful in some situations, especially apples-to-apples comparisons. 
the mean IQ is always set to be 100, and the distribution on both sides of 100 are supposed to be equal. There are as many people with an IQ of 80 as with 120, the same number with IQ 70 as IQ 130, etc. And this is one of the problems with IQ because it presupposes an even distribution. No, don't worry about it now. We'll handle it whenever I get around to that episode. The point is, for the high lead level group, Dr. Needleman found that the mean IQ was 95, five points lower than the normal distribution. In the normal distribution, the same portions of the population are labeled gifted, that is, with IQs above 130, as are labeled mentally disabled, IQ below 70. But not so for the high lead group. It included more than three times as many mentally disabled children as gifted ones. Further testing showed similar gaps in attention, behavior, and grades. When Needleman circled back to his test subjects a few years later, he found that those with high lead levels were seven times more likely to have dropped out of high school without graduating than the normal group. Or, sorry Claire, I should say, the typical group. There was no way to test the cognitive ability of children without lead exposure because there were no such children. And it's nearly impossible to reckon with the true scope of the tetraethyl lead disaster. How many people died directly from lead exposure? It's impossible to say. Data suggests that low-level, long-term lead exposure is a significant cause of cardiovascular disease and that lead concentrations are responsible for 400,000 preventable heart disease deaths per year right now. That's with average blood lead levels down to around an eighth of their peak in the early to mid-70s. We can safely say that tetraethyl lead has been the cause of some significant portion of kidney disease, chronic lung disease, not to mention, you know, straight up acute lead poisoning, which kills about a half million people worldwide every year in this century, though a majority of those deaths are attributable to occupational exposures and lead paint. When we get into the indirect effects, all hope of understanding the problem dies. What is the cost to the mental development of everyone on Earth? especially those who were children in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? How many people were never able to reach their full potential? And how might that potential have benefited us all? What might have been invented or discovered? How many doctors could have served how many patients? It's impossible to say. The hard numbers are that in 1975, the average blood lead level for Americans was 15 parts per million. Today, it's less than one. In that same time, the average childhood IQ rose five points. Most of that gain is probably directly attributable to lead removal, as is some portion of average life expectancy, which has risen more than 15 years. Maybe the most stunning benefit of lead reduction has been the corollary reduction in crime. In 1979, Dr. Needleman began comparing the bone lead concentrations of about 200 teens who had been convicted in juvenile court in Pittsburgh, and compared them to the bone lead concentrations of high school students without offenses there. His paper, published in the AMA Journal in 1996, showed a significant link between antisocial behavior and childhood lead exposure. By then, this wasn't a novel thesis. The social scientists had already noted that the precipitous fall in violent crime rates in the United States tracked almost exactly on top of the drop in atmospheric lead. The data is so strong and so exact and so direct that it literally made me scream, holy shit, aloud to my dog. 
A research team out of California State University and backed by the United Nations found that the reduction in leaded gasoline was responsible for preventing 58 million violent crimes between 1985 and 2011. They also estimated that every year within that period, reduction produced an average of $2.4 trillion in economic benefits per year and saved an average of 1.2 million lives. From what I can figure, those estimates are probably low. The last leaded gasoline pumps in America were turned off on January 1st, 1996. Claire Cameron Patterson died three weeks earlier, too soon to see the culmination of his efforts. Robert Kehoe died three years before that. He'd retired in 1966, perhaps seeing that the writing was on the wall, or tired of being drilled by senators and surgeons general about his increasingly untenable positions. This is the more complicated story, where it's not clear who knew what and when, who believed the lie and who swallowed it. It focuses hard on the ambiguity and less on the incentive. It is my belief, generally, that the complicated version tends to be truer than the simple one, that villainy is mostly incidental. But now that we're here, at the end of the complicated version, I should tell you that it doesn't add up either. That there's one more piece of evidence for the simple take which my nuanced one can't explain. You may have noticed it already. If they started phasing out leaded gasoline along with the rollout of catalytic converters back in 1975, then how'd they solve the engine knock problem? From the time the first workers began dying off in Ohio and New Jersey until after Claire Patterson began publishing his lead numbers, the auto and petroleum industries and the Ethel Corporation had fallen back on a final line of defense over and over. Even if leaded gasoline were dangerous, which it isn't, they would say, there's no alternative. It's the only thing that solves engine knock. But it turned out that wasn't true. And more importantly, it turned out that GM, DuPont, Standard Oil, and Ethel Corp. all knew it. Because Thomas Midgley Jr. discovered a different anti-knock solution before he stumbled upon tetraethyl lead. Ethanol, i.e. simple grain alcohol, added to gasoline at a mixture of 10 to 20%, eliminated the knocking problem completely. It was also cheap, widely produced, and wouldn't cause the deaths of 50 to 100 million people over the course of a half century. But industry identified a problem with using ethanol. It wouldn't be profitable to them. So, maybe there's a villain out there after all. Music for today's episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Leroy's Veer, and Epidemic Sound. Special thanks go out to Jonathan Casali, Mike Schroeder, Penny Rubin, Patrick Connolly, Sandeep Bott, Adam Pisoni, Alex Kayfish, Jylene Livengood, Jay, and all our Patreon supporters who help make this show possible. If you would like to join them, go to patreon.com slash the constant to sign up. Or tell a friend. And maybe take a second to rate us on Apple Podcasts, even leave a review. Constantpodcast.com is the website where you can find our merch store as well as some other stuff that could look prettier, but I'm bad at web design. We're a proud part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, home to Lonely Palette, the podcast that returns art history to the masses. On their latest episode, they've collaborated with Harvard Art Museums to tell the story of Edo Japan, both the period and the exhibition Painting Edo, which just permanently closed after being open for only five weeks before COVID hit. 
But maybe we don't need the exhibition to be physically open to still appreciate how this culture, steeped in the gentle presence of Buddhist philosophy and uncannily modern painting, can speak to the strange reopening of our moment. Episodes available at thelonelypalette.com or wherever you get your podcasts. From Chicago, Illinois, where next time we'll be celebrating our 100th episode, if you can possibly believe that. This has been The Constant. Like the old saying goes, an apple a day keeps the doctor away, 200 apples a day brings arsenic poisoning your way. Someone's going to go away believing that's an actual thing. That's not. I just made that up. Thank you.